Amen. Can you bless the Lord this morning for the love of God? Amen. You may be seated. How many are glad to be in church today? Amen. Thank you, my brother. Open up your Bibles with me to John chapter 13. Somebody say, love one another. Amen. Today's message is on loving one another and how important it is to love. I like when worship songs confirm the message. You just heard a message about God's love, and we're literally going to preach on God's love. Isn't that amazing? Mind blown. God's in charge. He's doing things. Pay attention to the Holy Spirit. Follow the stream of God. You know, one time I was with my children, and I think I see that child right now. We were swimming on the river's shore, on the river's edge, but she got a little bit too deep in the river, and there she started to go downstream. She always says to this day that she almost died. But no, I think the four-year-old, five-year-old self just got really nervous. She was within walking distance still. I think she probably could have stood if she tried. You know, sometimes you see those videos, children think they're drowning, and the parents just realign them like, oh, you can stand right here. That's what I think happened, but she's free to have her opinion of that story. Everybody say, go with the flow. Come on, the love of God, let it flow through your life, man. It's not superficial. It is so deep. Somebody say deep. Man, it is so deep. It will reach the parts of you you didn't even know needed to be loved. Just speaking again about my children, because I love uh, making sure that uh, church counselors will have the work cut out for them when my kids reach adulthood, just making sure keeping the pastoral counselors busy. So I'm going to mention my children again. My children don't even know their personalities yet, as well as parents do, as well as I do. How many parents here know your children's personality better than they do? A few parents can understand that? Okay. And I think at some point, they'll know it better than you know it. You know, I think sometimes my mom tries to read into my personality, you know, even at this age. I just turned 46 last week, and my mom still thinks she knows me better than me. And I'm like, no, you don't. I know me. Trust me when I tell you this, you know. But I will say, in the years of, you know, childhood development, all the way through preteens and even the teenage years, I would say predominantly through those tough times of their life, Parents recognize their personality better than they do. And even the Bible says it like this, who can know the human heart like God? Nobody knows your heart better than God. Well, let me just say this right here. God is our Father, knows things on the inside of you that you don't even know today. And what areas he needs to touch your heart in, that's why you've got to learn to surrender to the Holy Spirit and his love. Because if you're trying to have a dialogue with God before you receive his love in certain areas, he would have to explain to you the eternal you know, nature of his love. And you don't have eternity to go through this situation right now. Are you guys tracking with me? You need God's love right now. So you just need to trust him and open up your heart. And, you know, I want to say this with all grace and humility. There is no better place than to do it in a church like this because you can trust what God does as you... uh, ask others to pray for you and to experience that love. So what I'm speaking to right now, let me just speak to this even more clearly as I sense the Holy Spirit. Some may say trauma. 
There is a lot of work being done in the psychological field in regards to trauma. Now, I always uh, go into the psychological field very carefully because oftentimes they deny the body-soul dimension they, and, that, and that component of what we would call dualism. They don't understand that, that the human experience is more than just physical. They only see it as chemicals and things like that. How many know what I'm talking about? You get that feel alive lot. Like it's just Pavlov's dog. Here's a response. Here's a mechanism in your brain. Let's try to fix the brain to that response. And thankfully, because of brain science and all science in general, the more we know, the more we go back to God. Now they're starting to understand, man, there is a soulish component to how we heal the mind. It's almost like the brain and the mind are two separate things. Because when they see problems with the brain on the brain scan, what they'll do is speak to the person and we know that's their soul, and they'll ask them to begin to start cognitive therapy. Well, they'll start to talk to themselves. Well, they'll start to be mindful within themselves. How many know these kind of techniques, okay? And they'll start to change the brain. There's actually neuroscientists that have come out with books that say, think and change your brain. Ways to uh, stretch and, and make your brain, you know, malleable to the things that are positive, and they call this neuroplasticity. If you think the preacher just went off and all I should do is talk about Jonah and the whale. Google me, Google me while I'm talking to you, okay? And, and put it on Facebook on my page right now under today's devotional if I got something wrong. Now listen to me. When you look at the scriptures, you're always a spiritual soul within a body, okay? And so when we talk about trauma, we're not just talking about what your body, what your brain went through. We're talking about what your soul went through. Even at the stages of development when children were little and they were hearing the screaming, seeing the drugs, feeling the abuse, that's real trauma not only for the body but also for the soul. The, come on, somebody. Somebody say soul. You see, that's real. And so when they talk about trauma, that's real. But there's also something else that's real. The Holy Spirit being born again, becoming a new creation. And so, listen to me, soul brother, soul sister, you've got to give the control of your soul to the one who can make you whole. Hallelujah. Come on, somebody. Dropping bars here, and it's so true, because the soul cannot be made whole unless you give control to God. And so, I don't want to try to pretend that I'm going to fix you with a few little doodads that I know from science and the Bible right now, but I do want to tell you that with faith in Jesus Christ, nothing is impossible when you stand on his word. And what would take counselors three years, a therapy dog, and a trip to the Himalayas? Come on, God can do at this altar. God can do in a prayer time in your closet right now when you go home. God can heal you and go deep within the soul to things that you don't need to find through hypnotism and different things. Or my past lives, which we know is fake. If you just trust God and let him get into it and fix you and heal you and restore you, you'll see that it works 
It's not because the pastor said it. It's because the way God designs you. It's because what God said is how he did it. He set you up for self-maintenance, listen, as you're plugged in to the Holy Spirit. See, that's the problem with the new age, okay? I have to teach on cults every week, and you guys are getting the lesson before I teach on it on Monday. Somebody say, bring in. This last weekend, I had to study the new age. Now, when you listen to the New Age and you watch their videos and you go to their websites, there is probably more truth there. And this is a big statement, so track me, track with me here and test me on this. There's probably more truth there than there is in any other of the religions that you go to where there's like, you know, a big name behind it, like Hinduism. You know, the truth that they try to promote with gods and all this and the mythology. No, no, nothing's there. Islam and all the way he looks at stuff and puts words in Jesus. Jesus' mouth and the prophets hundreds of years, thousands of years after they've been alive. That's just nonsense. But when you go to the new age and they start talking about mindfulness, see, that gets my attention. Or when they talk about meditation, not on a man, a guru, or towards some false god in India like Ganesh or something, but they talk about meditating upon the higher being to know thy creator and to know thyself. Man, that starts, to, that starts to check some boxes for me. Are you listening to me? And then when they start talking about affirmations, have you heard that before on TikTok? These are my affirmations. Man, they, they get my attention. And then they start talking about manifesting and believing and speaking things. I'm almost like, preach it, preacher. Are you guys listening to me? Why is that? Is it because they tapped into something as a shortcut away around the ways and the doctrines of Christianity? In other words, can they get all the, all the good things of Christianity without the doctrine? Can they get to the end of what Christianity really is? No, no, no. It's a deception to do it without the doctrine. Because without the doctrine, what is your, who is your creator? What is your higher power? Without the doctrine of Christianity, what is your soul? Why are you here? And all of these things are very important. And so what they're doing, though, is just like the farmer. Now watch this. A farmer can go to the earth and with some seed go... I love you, seed. You have the power in the life force within you of God. They can, you know, get all spiritual with it. And then they can kiss the ground and go into the ground. And they can put all that false doctrine into that belief of sowing and putting it into the ground and taking care of that land. But guess what? Even though they had the wrong doctrine the whole time, kissing seeds, acting like a seed was part of divinity, the ground was part of divinity, worshiping Mother Earth. How many know, even though they would have the wrong doctrine, the principle of seed time and harvest would still work for them. And that's why the New Age is so so uh, demonically inspired. It is right next to the truth. It has enough of it to draw you in, but it doesn't have the right doctrine, and it will lead your path to hell. And when I talk to a lot of you in here, you say, that was tempting for me back in the day. I used to be in stuff like that because I was looking to be spiritual. Somebody say spiritual. Thank you. But now let me just help encourage you with that. When you see those things working, it's no different 
than the farmer talking all that nonsense about Mother Earth, but still seeing everything come to pass on their crops. It's because that was built into the system. It was built into the system for you to be able to take a seed, put it in the ground, water it, remove weeds, fertilize it, and make it grow. What's built into the system of your human body is when you shut off that phone, close your eyes, and meditate on the beautiful things of God, your soul is going to start to heal itself and find in itself a peace. Are you listening? God is going to allow that to reset. God is going to allow, just like when you go to sleep. This is a better example. It takes less time to explain it than the farmer example. When a sinner sleeps, do they get rejuvenated when they wake up? They do. Their body rejuvenates. Otherwise, they would die. You can only go so many hours without rejuvenating sleep. Are you listening? So it's working for them. They're getting rejuvenated. There's a principle there. They're obeying the law of sleeping and getting up, but they don't understand why that law is there and why they keep getting up and why God is blessing their activities in the day. Can I hear an amen? And this is the same thing, my brothers and sisters, as I get ready to go into the message. This is the message before the message. Anybody encouraged today? When you hear about this soul trauma and you hear about these things going on in people's lives and you are discipling them or they're your friends or your family members or even your precious children, so many of you uh, have taken your children out of bad relationships and you're, you're a single mom or a single dad. Listen to me. When you see these traumas in their lives, understand that you need to point them to Jesus. You need to point them to the healer of the soul. That's why you'll hear testimonies in this church. I shouldn't be here. People will say, I shouldn't be here. I should be hooked on drugs like my mom was hooked on drugs. Or I should be hopping around from boyfriend to girlfriend because that's how I was raised. Or I should still be depressed or I should still be this or that. And, and they'll tell this amazing testimony. And sometimes people will listen to them and go, man, I'm so jelly of that. I want that 10-step program. Hey, you know, Let me get it. Make all my problems go away. And what those people listening to the story of that testimony or not understanding. It wasn't what that person did for themselves. It's what they allowed God to do. Can I hear an amen to that? It's what they allowed God to do. And this is where I got to be a little bit sassy as your pastor and be a blessing to the pastoral counselors. There are some people that will get that within moments of their Christianity. And then there are others who have been in Christianity for a long time and still don't get that. They still don't get that. I know pastors that don't get it. Their soul is messed up. They've gone through trauma. As I've told the story of here before, a well popular, a very popular man that I knew that was all over his denomination preaching in stadiums. He was one of the biggest preachers, evangelists in his denomination. Him and his wife took on a great church and it was growing, but that church turned against them, kicked them out. Nothing to do with sin, just differing opinions of how the church should be run. The pastor's wife couldn't get out of bed for months. Because she was devastated by that. I mean, could you imagine? You're serving in the church. You're loving the people. The church is growing. There's no sin in your life. There's no false doctrine. And yet, just because of a petty personality issues, you're now fired with your husband. I mean, that delicate heart that she had was broken. And it left her in bed, having her world spinning. And yet... She had to learn in that point that God fixes the soul. 
And she had to get out of that bed and get back to living and to give relationships another chance, go back to the church, amen? And yet, I could tell stories about pastors that are still depressed, still mentally broken because they never got their healing out of those situations. And it's the same thing with the members, brothers and sisters. And so when we sing a song like we just did, and it was written by us in the band, it's one of the, the homemade specials here, amen? It's one of those homemade goody goods you can only get here, amen? Come on, somebody. It's a good one. You've captured my heart with your love. What that came out of was a desperation to express to God what he does in me when I worship him. When I'm worshiping him, I'm captured by his light and his love. I'm, I'm drawn to the flame of God, the heat and the warmth. Like a tide pulling back the water, deep is calling unto deep. I'm brought back backed him and I'm captured by him and as long as I trust him in this place and allow his love to wash over me daily he's protecting me and my soul from things that I don't even know and he's healing the things of the past that I didn't even know I needed healing from amen amen go with me now to John chapter 13 verse 31 somebody say love one another Thank you, because now if we understand God's love, which that message fits perfectly into this message, we can now love one another. Jesus, he had been at the Last Supper with the disciples. He had exposed Judas as the betrayer. He had loved those who were there, prophesying about his crucifixion in the body and the blood being represented in the, the bread and the wine. He had washed their feet and had served them uh, and just loved them. He talks about the friendship that he has with him. Now, when he had gone, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. Somebody say he's glorified. Amen. A couple things you'll notice in the book of John as we're going through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter here in the first service. Also encouraging you to listen to Hebrews in the second service, having a lot of great theology and encouragement there. Notice that he calls himself the Son of Man. Oftentimes people say, well, he's just a man. That's why he calls himself the son of a man. But what they don't understand is that that term son of man does not mean you're just a man. It comes from Daniel chapter 7 when he saw one that looked like a man being worshipped as God. That was a title of someone who was worshipped in heaven but looked like one of us. Now you know you can't worship just any old man. Come on, somebody. That's called idolatry. So that's why it freaked Daniel out. We only have one God, and yet we see in that one God there's a person of the Father. He's sitting on a throne, and then coming to his throne is one that looks like he's the son to that one who's the Father. And all the angels are worshiping him like they worship the Father. Can I hear an amen? That's the title. So it doesn't merely speak of his humanity, though it does, but it brings us back to his humanity in divinity. In other words, man did not become God in Jesus. Jesus is not your example of how to achieve enlightenment, as some of those New Age people say. No, because that way you start off as man or woman, and then you go to deity, to God. That's not how it works. In the scriptures, it's not man becoming God, but 
God, hallelujah, becoming man, manifesting in the flesh so that as a man he might die for the sins of the world of mankind. Amen. He became like one of us to save us all. So the Son of Man does speak towards his humanity, but not only his humanity, also his divinity. But also uh, we see in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was what? God. So that's where we understand that the Son shares the same nature as the Father. What are you by nature, a human, a dog, or a reptile? What, What are you? How many humans do I have here? Anybody identifying as a reptile? Anybody here, you got to ask, anybody here identifying as a, a dog? Canine, no. Are you of the canine kind? You know, it's funny that people can do that now until somebody starts to act wild and crazy, right? It's, uh, you know, it starts with uh, people identifying as the opposite sex, going into the bathrooms, so we're de- dealing with that now. But what happens when they start affirming, listen, the 60-year-old man identi- identifying himself as a 6-year-old and wants to go into the bath, wants to go into the locker room. Come on, somebody. It's right around the corner, and it's already happening on the fringes. Somebody say, not around here. Amen. No, no, we're going to hold you to your gender. And uh, whether you identify it or not, that's what we're going to identify you as. Amen. Now, now notice this, though. You are by nature a human, right? Now, what was your father? Dog, reptile, or human? Ah, so you being a child of a human made you a what? Human. So even in people's uh, smarty pants response back to us, well, it says he's a man, not God. It says he's a man. Well, hold on. If God is his father, baby, what does that make him as a son? (laughs) If you came from a father that was human and then you are a what? Human, if his father is God, then what is he as a son? He's God. Now, some people go to the, to, to the stories in the book of Job and other places where it says, oh, there's other sons of gods, and these we know are angels. That's now where we get very particular. They're God-like, but they're not God in nature. How do I know the difference between these sons by the tons, as Muslims will often bring up against us, and say, look at all these sons by the tons that God has. And are you saying they're all God? You know, all these angels are called sons of God. And even even us as humans are called sons of God. Wow, that backfired on you, preacher. No, no, no. I'm developing a point that sons bear the nature of their father. And guess what? We bear divinity from our Father through Jesus Christ. Remember that. Because Jesus was the Son of God, we now become sons and daughters of God, sharing in divinity, becoming God-like. Everybody say godly means God-like. And that's what the Bible says. But hold on. In John 3.16 and in John chapter 1 verse 18, it says, the one and only Son, the monogenes, genetics, Mano, one of a kind. Are you listening to me? So, so that people do not misunderstand the example of a son bearing the nature, of the nature of the father. There is Jesus in a league all by himself in a one-to-one comparison to the father as the son of God. And all of us, including angels, are just replicas of that. Can I hear an amen? Amen. If you don't believe me, go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and you can see why angels and why humans are able to be identified now as sons of God. The reason is, is because they were made to represent the unique son of God. 
looking at Romans chapter 8, looking at verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his what? Son, oh, what I thought he had sons by the tons. I thought angels were sons. He's a son. You're a son. We're all sons here. Well, hold on. All the rest of us, as the lowercase sons of God, are conformed to that unique uppercase, one-of-a-kind son of God. Can I hear an amen? He's the model from which we are all duplicated from. And even though angels have that in some way, we have it in a greater way, and that's why angels are our servants. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 1 that angels are servants to us, so you shouldn't be praying to them, they should be serving you based on your prayers to God. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Thank you. Now going back to John chapter 13, he calls himself the son of man. That is to show us that he is made in the image of man. He has an incarnation in the flesh that does not take away from his divinity. And yet now it says that he is glorified. But hold up. Go with me to John chapter 8 verse 54. It says he was glorified there. And also in John eleven four, 4, if you could open up that passage as well, he's glorified there. So we're in chapter 13, and he says, the Son of Man is now glorified. Well, did that just start at that moment, or is there a contradiction here? What's going on? Just check it out with me first. If I glorify myself, John 8, 54, same book, previous chapters. If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, who you claim as your God, is the one. Somebody say present tense. Thank you. Is the one who glorifies me. Now, highlight, uh, just go over with the mouse, glorifies. There you go. And right here, does everybody see the word present? Right here, it's present. Now, go to that one in John. 11 4 contradiction no it's a compliment Jesus is always getting glorified <laughs> come on somebody and guess what in Christ you go from glory to glory to glory to glory not from glory to glory or what did you do no from glory to glory to go to glory amen not to glory what you got yourself into no it's God doing something great on the inside of you and Jesus is going from glory to glory to glory to the point where at the transfiguration he'll shine in front of them He's going to start revealing piece by piece who he is. Look at here, the resurrection of Lazarus. How many remember when we went through that portion? What does he say? This sickness, speaking of Lazarus, will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through him. Somebody say past tense. Past tense. So the moment it's done, now it will be in the past. He's looking towards the future of what this act will do. Now it will be in the past. So he's glorified in the present. He's glorified in the past. And then yet, if you go back now to our notes in John chapter 13, it says right here that the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. How is this man being glorified all the time by God the Father? It's because he's the perfect Son of God revealed in the flesh meant to show us who God is like or what God is, who God is and what God is like. And what that's going to come with is a whole lot of glory. And then one more passage here. Go to John 17. We're going to get there. Everybody just go peeky-boo. 
<laughs> I know I like making you guys say funny noises. One more time. Pinky boo. <laughs> Look at it. And he will receive the final outpouring of glory to his full glorification of the Son of God, which he had in eternity past after the resurrection. Because notice here, he now speaks it. Father, the hour has come. This is before he's going to the cross. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life that you may know the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have said, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence. Notice this right here. With the glory I had before the world, what? Began. Hallelujah. The crescendo of his glory as God in the flesh, will come at his resurrection. What a beautiful promise that we see towards Jesus. He's not just merely a man, he's the God-man. And as we go through the book of John, we see glory from the Father being poured out on him. You don't see this in any other prophet. Once again, you will hear about, as we read in Romans chapter 8, and just go back there quickly again, that we're um, predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, like in verse 29, 829. And then what does it say? For those God foreknew, he did this to be what? To be what? Predestined, called, and justified to what? Glorify them, even in the past tense, so that we can look back at what God has done in our lives and say there's always been glory waiting for us, and the moment we get saved, we tap into the glory that was there. Amen? But once again, where does that come from? That comes from Jesus Christ. You see, Satan wanted a glory for himself aside from what Christ would give him. This is where I believe his fall came from. He wanted to ascend higher than Jesus. He recognized that the Son was the image he was made in, even as an angel, not as powerful as what humans would become, but he saw his place there and that there was one who looked like him but was closer to the Father than him. And he was jealous, I believe, of the Son, wanting the glory that the Son had. And that's why Jesus kicked him out of heaven. He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. As I believe that was you prophesying in the first uh, part of this service, are we going to kick Satan's butt? Who was that? Andre, praise God. That was a good word in Jesus' name. Because I believe, you know, this is speculation. We don't, we don't see the saga of his fall in the scriptures. We only hear bits and pieces. But I believe it's because he was jealous of Jesus. And that's why when Satan comes to tempt him, he says, worship me. And I'll give you the kingdoms of the earth. See, that's what he always wanted. He wanted to be worshipped like how he saw all the angels in heaven worship the Son. Now, going back to uh, John here, the glory is now going to come upon Jesus in a unique way. In this context, the glory will come, at him at, come on him at once, as it says there at the end of 32, because now he's accepting the role to go to the cross. And there's a, there's a glory in the midst of the glory. And brothers and sisters, can I encourage you today that whatever trial, tribulation God has called you to go through, there's a glory that's going to come through that in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible says that through our sufferings, we are given the glory of God in unique and new ways. We see his love. We see his care for us. So if Jesus knew there was a glory in the midst of a glory, not personal sin, that's what I meant before, but in this situation of the suffering, if he knew that, we should trust God even, even more so because we 
know that this world is temporary. If, in other words, if Jesus, the Son of God, needed to trust the Father to glorify him, how much more so do we need to trust Jesus to glorify, to help us, to do all that we need? Amen? He said he'll do it. It's not for our own glory. He glorifies us for the glory of the Father. He loves to get us in the train of glory. Now, verse 33, my children, speaking with care towards his disciples, he says, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I now tell you where I am going, you cannot come. And that's where he told the Jews in John chapter 7, and they thought he was going to commit suicide, but no, actually they were going to have him murdered. He's speaking of his death. At that time, they didn't understand it. Now, verse 34, everybody say a new command. Thank you. A new command, Jesus says, I give you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, somebody say by this. Thank you. Will people know that you are my disciples? Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Let's take a moment to think about that. Will people know that we are Jesus' disciples by how strong and boldly we preach against their sin? That's not what it says. We will do that out of love. But is that going to be the primary way they know us is how we preach against their sin? Come on, Presbyterians or Pentecostals. Can I hear an amen? Amen. That's not how it's going to happen, is it? Are they going to know us by our signs and wonders, dreams and visions, conferences, books, or worship? Now, all of those things can happen in the Christian life, can they not? Fastings, praying, all of these evangelistic crusades, praise God for them. All of the personal experiences we'll go through, our dreams and our visions and these wonderful things God will do in our lives that we shouldn't take for granted. These are going to be wonderful, but it's not going to be how the world will know that we are truly Christians. It's going to be by our love for one another. Now, my brothers and sisters, ask yourself, how has the Christian church done at this? Not well. I think we all have to sit back and give us a one-star review. We just do. We have to be honest. We have to say we have failed at doing this. We don't do it well in our local context nor in the universal context. I remember hearing an old-time preacher say, the closer I get to Jesus, the more gracious I become. And I even thought to myself, you backslider, what's wrong with you? Stop it with all that graciousness. You better argue and debate over jot and tittles. You better find every speck that you can. You better make sure that everybody agrees with you. What are you talking about, old preacher? But now guess what? <laughs> Here's an old preacher with some gray hair. And I'll say it with a southern twang, brothers and sisters. The closer I get to Jesus, the more gracious I become. Isn't that beautiful? How many can say amen to that? Don't lie in church, but if it's true, say amen. The closer I get to Jesus, the more gracious I become. I realize that the little things that we fight over are really destroying the most important thing we have, which is a shared love of Christ. That's the most important thing we have. Not whether or not we read the King James or the NIV, the not inspired version, or whether or not we celebrate Christmas or let our kids dress up as superheroes on Halloween, or whether we do fast at the beginning of every new year and do a prayer meeting till four in the morning, or 
whether or not we tithe or don't tithe or allow women in the ministry or baptize infants and children, even some Protestants and those Presbyterians do that, the ones I'm always teasing you with as you get quiet, the frozen chosen as they're known. It doesn't matter when it comes to the core foundation of our faith. And yet we, I put myself there in the all-encompassing, we allow ourselves to get caught up in religious debate and cut off love. Man, I need love more than I need you and I to agree on everything. I'm a theologian. I am. I teach in Bible college by God's grace. But I'm telling you right now, it's emptiness compared to the brotherly love that I feel in this place. In other words, if all I had was my, my theology class, and that's all Christianity was, I would be so empty. Now, is it, is it both and? Everybody say yes. Amen. Go to first, uh, John chapter 1, the beginning of the book. He explains it's always going to be first and. So you're just not going to love your brother with some kind of, you know, ooey-gooey, sloppy agape, don't tell people the truth. No, Jesus whipped people in the temple. He talked about hell more than he did heaven. He loves uh, Peter enough to call him Satan. Are you listening to me, my friends? He called Judas the son of perdition. He said that the wrath of God... God would come on entire cities. He said he would revisit Jerusalem after they denied him and destroy the temple. His coming would come to fulfill the prophecies of of Ezekiel and so forth. But notice what it says here in John chapter 1, in our introduction, when we learn all about Jesus, what does it say? Verse 16, out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. He has come to give us grace multiplied on top of grace. Have you ever had a chocolate cake with chocolate filling and then some chocolate icing and then, come on, help me preach, and then some chocolate chips on top and then maybe some shavings of chocolate bars on top, you know, swirl like that. And then have you had some chocolate sprinkles put on it? And then maybe with a side of chocolate ice cream, with a chocolate shake, (laughs) come on, grace on top of grace, on top of grace, on top of grace, on top of grace, grace that knows no end, no bounds, no limitless grace, it's just limitless, it just keeps coming. The more that I have needed that grace, the more I recognize how much it multiplies. All you have to do is get married and realize how much grace you need to have multiplied by the factor of a million. Amen. Are you listening to me? How about parents in here? Did you have children and realize you needed some multiplied grace? You needed some grace to the hundredth power, as many stars as there are out there in the sky. Multiply my grace by that much, Jesus. And you know, everybody, let's be honest, you know when you don't receive grace. It's the thing we all want but give out so little. Jesus gave the example. He said there's a man, he's in debt to this king, this leader, his boss, whatever, and and he owes this man billions of dollars. And he wants grace to have that debt forgiven. And he begs and pleads, and his big debt is forgiven. And yet he goes and finds one of his friends on the, on the corner by the alley hanging out that owes him 50 cents, owes him a couple quarters. 
and he shakes him down, gets angry with him, abuses him, shames him in front of all of his friends and family, drags him to court, sues him, and finds pleasure in him going to jail. And then Jesus said, that's exactly what it's like when you are forgiven by God, and yet you don't forgive others. And I think to myself, how much I want that grace, and yet how stingy I am when it's my turn to give it out. God, change that about me. Make me as much about grace as I am about truth. Because when it comes to truth, I give it out by the ton. Amen? How many know I give out truth by the ton? But I don't want to give out grace by the ounces. Let me measure this out for you real quick. Here, here it is. You know, I'm doing my diet right now trying to get this thing going on. And, you know, I had to measure out cheese. And how many know it's just not fair how good cheese tastes, but how many calories are in it? I had to find out what a quarter a cup of, of this cheese was. And I'm like, man, that's all it is. That's, I, I put that on my eggs in the morning. This is all I get for the whole day, this little quarter cup. You know what I had to do? I had to put that quarter cup in a baggie so I wouldn't cheat. You, you couldn't even trust me to go in and get it out of the big bag. I had to put my cheese, man of God, in another bag and tell my wife, now don't you let me go to that big bag and get cheese throughout the day. This is my bag of cheese for the day. And sometimes you will find me go to that bag of cheese. You will find me go to that bag of cheese and you will think I'm salt bag going like this just a couple sprinkles of it. Okay, I'm going to put a couple sprinkles of it right here. Later on in the day, a couple sprinkles of it. And you will see me if you come at the right time of day holding a little baggie upside down over my frying pan, tapping the corner, trying to get those little sprinkles of that cheese. You would, you would see me acting that way. That's how I feel sometimes I am with grace. That's how I want to give it out to you sometimes. I'm ashamed of myself. I'm not proud of that. And yet, when I come to God, I want the whole block of it, the whole, you know, the whole barrel of it. Bring all the cheese you got, Jesus. Bring all the grace you got. We keep reading. It says, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I have to see Jesus as the perfect balance of this, the one that really knew how to love people with grace and with truth. And some of us are going to err on one side or the other. Maybe some of you are gifted with balance right at the beginning. Some are going to be more on the side of grace, and you're never going to confront. And there are some of you here like that. And normally, you annoy me <laughs> because you you too nice. You're just too nice, you know. You confront them. Say something, you know. I, I don't even want to uh, I don't even want to pull out somebody that I've been working with lately and, and hanging out with him, and we're doing business together. Oh, I might as well just point him out. His name is Lawrence. Let's give it up for Lawrence. <sighs> But there have been times in our business, Lawrence, let's be honest, when you've gotten off the phone with a vendor, a customer, or the text from our machines, and I have said, why did you let them do you like that? Right? A time or to get them back on the phone, X, Y, and Z. The grace meter has run out. <laughs> get them some truth. And, of course, it doesn't run out. It just manifests in different ways. Sometimes grace is a paddling for a child. Amen? Sometimes a rebuke is grace, but we can't use that excuse and just be mean to people. That's the grace you need. No, 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 hold on. It's still got to be full of the love of God, even if we're disciplining. Amen? Jesus came full of grace and truth. What are you full of right now? Look at your neighbor and say, what you full of? Come on, what are you full of? Amen? 
What are you full of? I want to be full of grace and truth. A new command, Jesus said, I give you. It, it really means fresh. It doesn't mean new like they didn't know it before. If you look at Leviticus 19, 18, he said the same thing to them actually in the law. The golden rule goes back to the days of the law and the commands of God. But when he says this is a new command, it's a fresh command. You're supposed to have a new insight. Look at Leviticus 19, 18. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge. Don't get bitter. Get better. Amen. Come on, all the single moms said. Oh, come on, single moms. Y'all got quiet on me. Single moms don't get bitter, get better. And everybody said, amen. And all the dads out there, everybody, I'm just teasing the single moms. Don't bear a grudge against anyone or your people, but take them to court if he's a deadbeat dad. I got your back, okay? But notice this. But love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. It's there. It's in the scriptures. But why does he say it's a new command? Because it's fresh. It needs to be brought again to their memory, going back to the notes. It's got to be something that you get every day fresh, like bread. It's got to come always to you as something new. You can't rely upon yesterday's revelation of love, yesterday's revelation of grace. Yesterday, you know, that manna in the Bible, it gets stale. And it's no longer useful. The love of God is for the present. Amen? Lauren, can I get some water, please? I want the love of God to be fresh and new in my life every day. And I want people to see that I am a disciple of Christ because of how I love others. Thank you. Would you look at your neighbor and say, I love you in Jesus' name? Now look at that same neighbor and say, I may not always like what you do, but I love you. I love you. I have to believe that, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm going to grow in that today. Because if this is as good as it gets, my friends, this is not, this is not where we want to end. This is not as good as it gets. <clears throat> There's a lot more love to experience. There's a lot more grace to experience. Old-time preachers used to say, be careful what you pray for because you're going to get more of it. You pray for patience, you're going to get a lot of trials and tests. You pray for love, you're going to get a bunch of unlovable people in your life. Hey, you want to work on your love? Try loving this guy, this person, right? But I don't think we should be afraid of those prayers because I believe we learn things that are so valuable that we shouldn't be afraid to pray the will of God. God, help me to love. I don't want to go into details, so I won't mention names, but most of you can probably know in this sermon, uh, in this service who I'm talking about, but we have a dear family in our church that is adopting children. And as going through that adoption, they are suffering through the process of our government, foster care, the program, the parents that just don't want to do right or help out. And it's hard in that situation, and it's unimaginable. But you know what? I've been watching them, and their love for these children are greater than every trial and test they've ever been through. And I don't think they should have been afraid to pray, God, help me to love children who have been orphaned or abandoned or abused or neglected because I'm going to go through problems. You shouldn't be afraid to pray that because of that. I don't look to them and feel sorry for them, though I have so much compassion of what they go through in the process of loving. You know, oftentimes we in the pro-life are mocked with the foster care and the, the need for adoption, and then you watch what people go through trying to do it right, and it's like these fools don't even know what they're talking about. But yet God calls us to take that journey of love with people. I look at my parents who had to take the journey of love 
with me as a rebellious child and how heartbreaking that must have been for them to watch the one that they birthed and and cared for and provided for turn against these values that they knew were right and true and destroy, listen, every opportunity of relationship. As a rebellious teenager, I destroyed. Because, you know, the Bible says the thief comes to what? Steal, kill, and what's the last thing? Destroy. He wants to take it from you. He wants to kill it, and then that's not enough. He wants to blow it up. The devil ran me through every one of them so fast, stole my relationship with my godly parents. Some of you here, every time I hear your testimony, I'm convicted of this because you're like, I was brought up in a family that didn't know God. My parents didn't even like me coming to church. And and almost every single time I hear those testimonies, I get hit right in the heart because I did have parents that loved God. I did have parents that brought me to church. I didn't have a parent ever do anything that would be considered abusive. I didn't have any, any of that. And yet I turned my back on them. At one of my rebellious stages, this is how wicked I was, I took the Bible that my parents had bought for me and I ripped it up in front of them, cursing God and cursing them. Could you imagine what it would be like for my mom that day to then say these words? I love him, to pray for me again and to say, God, because you love him even more than I love him, don't turn your back on him. Give him another chance. And I believe there were miracles in my life that kept me from meeting Judgment Day because of a praying mother. I don't believe prayer can change the will of somebody, but I believe our prayers give them protection, longevity, and more opportunities So do not forsake your duty to pray and to love. But my friends, if I were to tell you it would be easy, it wouldn't be easy. But it's going to be our greatest joy. Why? Because this is how Jesus loves us. And he says this is how you practice. Notice this. You start with the disciples. So my mom had to practice love, not with a rebellious teenager, but with a sister in church, someone that actually believed and loved the same God she did. So we practice loving unbelievers by loving believers. We, we practice overcoming difficulties in strangers' lives in traffic on the way to church. Come on, can you guys, please drive right. Have you ever seen it snow before? (laughs) Okay. We practice loving our unbelieving friend in traffic who gives us the one finger, but we give them two. We practice that right here. Just right here. You are the iron sharpening my iron in the love sword, in the way of love. And yet what I see as a passion, I just, I don't speak this because it comes any easier. I just speak it because I see it more. As a pastor, I see it more that oftentimes we as Christians can be some of the most pettiest people that you will ever meet, even more than the people of the world. Now, don't get me wrong. People in the world can be petty as well. But I've heard many times people say that my friends in the world are more loyal to me than my friends have been in church. And that's a great indictment against the church. I've had people, I'm just being honest with you. I'm not just trying to make people feel bad. If you know these people, trust me, there's more than one for every example I give. But I've had people be angry at the church over one argument, over one tone that was used, over one situation they disagreed, one Facebook post. And I am like, do you have any friends? Because you can't tell me you've never had a friend raise their voice at you. 
You can't tell me you've never had a friend put up a post you disagreed with? Are, are you three? I mean, do you get your feelings? Are you listening? Do you get your feelings hurt that bad like it's over? It's, it's done? And then I've, and I just say this with all humility, and please don't think there's just one because all of you are thinking of one. They're probably not in the same person or the same group. Listen to me. I've had people want to enact vengeance on one another in the church at a degree that was never enacted on them for situations that were a hundred times worse. This person did this in this life group. I want them to no longer be a deacon. I expect this, this, and this, and this, and this. And we're like, you used to come to the life group high. You used to hit on people in the life group, some even married, or at least got an awkward personal space conversations with them. It's good to see you, sister. Holy kiss. Girl, that's somebody, dude, that's somebody's wife. Back up, Jack. Like, we've been gracious with you, and this offense, you're out the door because vengeance vengeance is not exacted on that person like the way you think it should be done so you can feel better about it. This happens in the church. Somebody say, my people. This is my people. And I still defend that Christians are the best people, the best culture, and the best people to be around and share life with. But I got to be real with the issues that we've faced. I've had people... Leave the church. We find out months later that they thought I was talking about them because I mentioned somebody living in sin or some situation. Boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, I talk about sins every time I preach. If your toes got stepped on, it's not because some life group leader told me that you just confessed to them last night that you had sex with your girlfriend. It's because you're a sinner and God wants you to hear from the preacher that he knows your business. <laughs> now, it is hard, and this is why I don't do pastoral counseling, to keep all of that in your mind and use examples that are applicable and not mix the two. So I gave up trying that a long time ago. Now most of my examples, you all know what I'm talking about, at least situations. And praise God, I don't name your name. Amen. But I think about it like, you thought that petty of me. Like, I'm that insecure. You confessed you had sex outside of marriage to a life group leader this week. And I'm like, oh, we better get on that. Oh, we better deal with that right now. Let's just If I'm dealing with something, it's a lot more serious than just one person's individual sin. It's usually a group of people's sins or a cultural issue or a false doctrine. Can I hear an amen? I'm not petty like that, but yet I've heard people get so offended. Instead of just asking, hey, man, were you talking about me because you heard this from my life group leader? There's one review on Google. It cracks me up. It says, I said this to a pastor, and then pastor got around me at an outreach, and I know that he said what I told to Berto because he treated me different. And I'm saying, God's honest truth. We didn't talk about you. <laughs> you weren't that important. Whatever you thought was going on behind the scenes. Oh, hey, uh, Pastor Berto has to call me up at 10 o'clock at night. Hey, I just got off the phone with so-and-so, and this is what he said, Pastor, I just want you to know. Somebody say, help us, Lord. Come on, grace multiplied on grace. Grace multiplied. People of God, can we do better? Can we do better? Well, what if everybody walks all over me? Then we'll talk about it. 
But can we at least get close to that edge? We are in a generation where y'all don't even let us get close to that. I've had, it was so funny. I had one woman come to the church, get offended and leave, and then talk to me. And then when she saw me, I was like, hey, it's so good to have you here. Man, God bless you. I was just greeting her. And she go, oh, did you hear about my offense and, and everything and how it worked out? And I go, no, I never even knew, knew you left. <laughs> She's like, oh, well, I was offended. I left, and now I came back. And I'm like, cool, glad to have you back. In her world, she thought I knew the whole story. I didn't even know the first part of the story. I was just greeting you, sister. Good to have you here today. I say that to my kids in the morning. I got hung up on the phone the other day by how polite I am at some, some point. You guys may not believe this, but I'm actually kind of polite. I was calling up a business, and I was like, hello, this is Joe. Who am I speaking with? Because they didn't introduce their, their name. They go, I don't want anything. And then they hung up on me. And so I called back the business. I go, is this such and such a business? And they go, yeah. And I go, why did you hang up? I'm like, I thought you were a salesman. No, I was just introducing myself, dude. Hey, man, this is Joe from uh, GarbageBags.com. Uh, Here, sell you some garbage bag. Who am I speaking with? No, I was just like, yeah, I'm Joe. Who am I talking I want to know the person that I'm talking with. But you see, people can get so offended, miscommunicate, misunderstand, not, not get it. I walk and see my kids all the time and say, it's good to see you here today. I love you. And I slap them a high five. Why? Because it's good to see them here today. Not because I knew you got offended left and everything's right and now I'm checking on you, which I do check on people and stalk you sometimes, but that wasn't it. You can't assume, amen, because you know what happens when you assume you make a blank out of you and me. Don't do that, amen. Can I hear an amen? The practicalities of this are endless. Let me just give you a few things. The few things that we need to know is, number one, you have to forgive as you've been forgiven. You have to be patient. You have to overlook the small you have to see the good in people and not just the mistakes that they're making. And you have to ask yourself, how would I want to be treated in this situation? I was talking to a gentleman the other day. He found out I was a pastor. And he said, man, he was a Christian, praise God. And he, he said, lay on me the deep stuff, man. I love going deep. And so do I. You guys know that about me. I love going deep. Just did some, some deep work here in the sermon. But I said, you want to know the deepest thing I'm learning? Is love your neighbor as yourself. That's what I'm learning because I hate it when I don't. I hate it when I, I don't like it when I don't love my neighbor as myself. I feel icky. I feel dirty. I feel like I'm doing something wrong in Christianity. I know I'm still a Christian. I know Jesus loves me, but it gets in the pit of my stomach. It makes me feel weird because that's not what we're supposed to be doing. We're not supposed to be seeking revenge. We're not supposed to be holding grudges. We're not supposed to be bitter. We're not supposed to be nitpicking one another. We're not supposed to be dropping each other like it's just a gym that you don't like because now uh, Lifetime Fitness will give you one for $9.99 instead of $10.99. We're not not supposed to be like that, brothers and sisters. We're just not. And we're doing a poor job of sharing our testimony with others, especially when we're church hopping and we're leaving these relationships. Our unsaved family goes, oh, you still at that church? No, I'm not there. I'm at this one. Oh, you at this one? No, I'm not. At They're looking at us going, man, why can't you even find a church? I've been going to the same barber for 12 years. You've been going to 20 churches in the last year. You get what I'm saying? Some people are more faithful to their barber than they are to their church. And I'm not saying some churches aren't bad and need to be left. I'm just saying, like, man, are all of them that bad? Like, really? You know? And then if you find a good one, you, you, you can't stay because of X, Y, and Z reason. My brothers, we have to love each other. Pastors have to love people. Sometimes pastors are hopping churches just like members are hopping churches. 
And then now moving to the last part of this message, Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? You're telling us to love each other, and you're saying that everybody's going to know that we love each other, but you also said you're going and that we can't come. And then Jesus replies to them again, where I'm going, you cannot come now. You can't come now, but you will later. Somebody say, that's heaven. Amen. So they couldn't go with him for those three days while he was buried in the grave, going from the grave to hell, defeating the devil, coming back up to heaven. But they were going to go be with him shortly. Verse 37, Peter asked, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. I'm ready to die. If that's what it means to follow you is die, I'm ready to die for you, Jesus. And then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Oftentimes we make promises we can't keep, but Jesus still loves us. Amen. I highlighted some places in that story where you can see the harmonization of the different gospels as they talk about Peter's betrayal. And we will get to it in the book of John. But I want you to see that Jesus loved John and, uh, uh, loved Peter enough to say, I even know that you won't keep this promise, but I'll be here for you when you come back. Isn't that how gracious our God is? So shouldn't we love people just like that? Well, I knew... I you know what? I knew that about you when I first met you. You know, I knew you would be messy. You had the big hoops. You had the hair slipped back. I knew you were, I'm sorry, ladies. You, I knew you were going to be messy. I knew it. I, I saw it. I, I used to hang out with girls like you. I knew, I knew you. I, and you know what? You proved me right. I gave you a chance. Let me just ask you a question. Even if you knew girl with the hoops was going to wild out at you at some point, okay? Even if you knew that was going to happen, why not say to her? But guess what? When I knew it was going to happen, I put multiplied grace there waiting for you. I already put the grace there. That's called forbearance. Where, where if you in wisdom, which I'm saying you better be wise in this life. I'm not saying let people walk on you. But even if you have that kind of sense about you, you know something's going to go wrong, just put some grace there. Get ready for it in that way. Don't, don't get judgment waiting there. Don't, don't get wrath waiting there. If you see someone has the potential to do you wrong and you've been around the block, we encourage your street smarts here. We don't ask you just to go with the flow. Don't drink the Kool-Aid, okay? Use the God-given brain and life experience he's given you. But if that's all true, just put grace there. And so if it comes up, you can say, you know what? And you could mean this. You could say, God told me this would happen. We would get into a fight like this. But you know what? He's prepared my heart. I got grace for you. Are you willing to stick through it with me? Because we're not really friends until we disagree. I always say this as a pastor. You don't really love me until I can tell you no. Amen? I got that from a pastor much older than me. He's about ready to meet Jesus. He's getting close to his 80s. He said, you always tell people in the church if they really love you, if you can tell them no, and you can still be in relationship. That's when you know they really love you. Because as a pastor, if they don't love you even when they, you tell them no, then they're not here to build a relationship in love. They're just opportunists. You know, imagine just a child stomping their feet. Oh, mom and dad, you don't love me because you won't give me X, Y, and Z. That's not real love. A child can love their parent even though the parent says, no, we're not getting candy in the checkout aisle. I love you, but we're not getting that. And so in relationships, we need to put that grace ahead of people because how many know Peter eventually did give his life for Jesus? Peter eventually did get crucified, but upside down as they were killing him in Rome because that was a popular form of torture. It wasn't just for Jesus. It was for others. When they went to crucify Peter, he said, I'm not even worthy to die the way my Savior died. Can you put it upside down?
So Satanists, even mocking our cross, don't realize that they're giving honor to a disciple of Christ. So when we see that cross upside down, they're like, yeah, I'll show you. No, you're just reminding me of Peter, who was once a betrayer like you guys, taking the side of Satan, called Satan, and yet who became redeemed for Jesus Christ and laid down his life. Amen. Let's give it up for Jesus today. Praise God. Love one another. Would you stand up with me, band and altar workers? Would you come, please? How many are going to put some love into practice today? Amen. Let's pray in closing. Father, we thank you for this wonderful day. You've loved us. You've given us breath to breathe, a, a beating heart pumping through blood through our veins. Lord, we're thankful to be alive. And Lord, we ask you to teach us to love you and to love others. If you're here today in the attitude of prayer and you have not yet started a relationship with Jesus, would you open up your heart to do so right now? Pray something like, Father, forgive me of my sins. I believe Jesus died on the cross for me, rose again from the dead. He is Lord of my life. Talk to him right now if you don't know him yet personally. A simple prayer can open up your heart to God. That's all prayer is. It's talking to God. And a prayer of repentance, saying you're wrong, sorry for your sins, and declaring him to be your Savior will set you on this path of love right now. If you're a Christian and you have not been living like a Christian, you don't treat others like the way you should, you've been through some things in life, and you're holding those grudges, would you ask Jesus to teach you how to forgive so that you can be gracious? Not approving of wrong, not a doormat, but simply being gracious. And then the rest of us right now, if your heart is right, if you've been doing this good, would you ask for more? Even in the time of worship we did this, let's do it again as we get ready to leave. Those who have not yet been filled with the Holy Spirit speaking in other tongues, these altars will be open for you. Those who need healing in their body or deliverance from the traumas of life that we mentioned before, all of this will be available. If you need help in life or want counsel, they'll be here as well. But let's just pray. Those who don't know Jesus, ask Jesus into your life. Those who already know him but aren't living like him, make a change by the power of the Spirit. He'll help you. And then those of us today who do love him, we're doing our best. We're walking with him. Which just affirm right now you're not going anywhere. You're not betraying. And he'll help you keep those promises. And even if you should fall, like Peter, there'll be a second and third chance. Even as you're coming right now, Father, I thank you for those who are receiving prayer. Help us to love you. Help me to love you more. Help me to love my enemies, to forgive those who sin against me. Oh, Father, may I be a father, a husband that loves, a pastor that loves. The depths of your love, go deep in me, Jesus. Go deep in my life. The parts of me that I don't even know or understand, my past, my mistakes, cover me in love so I can love others. Lord, I pray for this church. Anyone who want to pray with me, you can do it now. We pray for this church. Just a few more moments and we'll dismiss, but come on. We pray for love in this church. We pray for offenses to be dealt with, not swept under the rug, but we pray for them to be dealt with in love, relationships to work through arguments and offenses, differences. We pray for love. We pray for a church to set an example to the community, to our families of what it looks like when we love one another. I pray for families, husbands and wives and children, to set examples to the other families in their community of what love looks like. Start here, Jesus. Before we tell it to anybody else, start in us. Father, we ask you now to bless us as we go. Let us always be in love. Let's always keep this command fresh, Lord. Help us to do that. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Can you bless them, saints? 
Well, we love you. God bless you. Thank you for coming to church. We're going to close in worship right now, first service. If you would like to be dismissed, you can go out the side door. Otherwise, keep praying and worshiping. We'll see you at Life Groups. Come on in, second service. God bless you. We love you.